This Sunday will mark World Blood Donor Day. Now more than ever, the Blood Bank of Hawaii needs your kokua. It is making an appeal for donors because our supplies this week were dangerously low. The center says an hour of your time could help save three lives with a donation of blood. During this health crisis, there's also a push for those who have recovered from the COVID-19 virus to consider donating plasma. We are hearing about the clinical trials and the success of helping patients recover thanks to the life-saving plasma donations. We talked to Dr. Kim on win CEO of the Blood Bank of Hawaii, about the collaboration with local hospitals. We first heard about convalescent plasma at the end of March. So when COVID-19 hit the United States, early March, I went to Washington, D.C., to meet with the head of the Food and Drug Administration and the leaders of the blood banks in the United States to talk about what we were going to do about this, whether there was anything we could do. And so at the end of March, um, I heard through our network that convalescent plasma was an experimental protocol that was being developed because there were no drugs, no treatment available for COVID-19. And at the time, literally tens of thousands of patients were in the hospitals in New York City. And so on March 24th, when I heard that uh, the Mayo Clinic was putting together a group to start uh, a protocol, a national protocol for convalescent plasma, I immediately reached out to the CEOs of of Queens, Hawaii Pacific Health, and also the leadership of Kaiser Department of Health in Hawaii, and said, and the dean of the medical school, and said, all of the leaders in Hawaii, I have heard that convalescent plasma is being thought of as an experimental protocol. Food and Drug is very interested in making something available for all of the United States. I think we should consider this in Hawaii. I think we should get on board. Are you interested? And so I committed Blood Bank of Hawaii to being the providers of this, should there be interest. And so April 15th, actually 14th or 15th, we put together a coalition meeting. And um, I reasoned that the only way Hawaii could move into this is if we moved into it together as a team. We moved out, and then 13 days later, we collected our first unit. And the way that we did it with a lot of forethought and moving together, seeing as that in the beginning, we never knew what was going to happen. We might get a lot of patients and not enough plasma. And so the goal was to gather enough donors and develop a stockpile. So, as of today, we now have, fortunately, 115 doses from 32 donors. That's an incredible stockpile in Hawaii that should we get a second wave as Hawaii opens up our borders, that we have doses here in Hawaii ready to treat patients. So we can be doing those clinical trials here in the islands? Correct. So uh, as of today, every hospital, to my knowledge, has been registered for this uh, extended access protocol. And as a patient is in the hospital and needs access to this life-saving treatment, the hospitals are enrolled, and all the hospitals would need to do is put in an order And we have all of the ABO types here at Blood Bank of Hawaii, and we would be able to send that convalescent plasma to the hospital, 
and treat that patient today. On day one, we collected the, the first collection, the donation, and I think on day three, we treated that uh, we treated one patient, the first patient, and as of today, we've treated three patients with five doses. So if somebody has tested positive for COVID-19, you folks would love to be able to uh, connect with them if they'd be willing to donate their plasma. That's right. And just so that you know, because we're going about it as a coalition, I believe that the state of Hawaii is doing something different. And I'm very proud of the way that Hawaii is doing it as a state. So because we have the Department of Health as part of the coalition, every every patient who has recovered gets a letter from the department through the Department of Health that says, congratulations on getting out of isolation. If you're interested, and you're healthy, and you are interested in helping other, save other patients into recovery, please consider donating your convalescent plasma. If you'd like to do that, contact Blood Bank of Hawaii. So tell us, what do people need to know about being able to get back into the swing of things and to donate blood? I think what people need to know is that Hawaii's blood supply is fragile and perishable and that we have to keep a continuous blood supply to ensure that patients get the life-saving blood they need. So we need donors throughout the summer to continue to roll up their sleeve, make an appointment, and come in to donate. Our hospitals over the last week and a half to two weeks have started to open up their operating rooms And as a result, we are seeing our orders for blood go up and uh, our supplies are are going down. And so uh, we ask that the people of Hawaii, please, please, during the summer, go onto our website, bloodbanktough.org, and make an appointment to donate. And what's the situation for the neighbor islands? As you know, because of the quarantine on neighbor island travel, we've had to suspend doing blood drives on the neighbor island. And so as soon as it's safe to do so, we are making plans and looking forward to coming back to the neighbor islands. Most people don't realize. You know, they ask me, so Dr. Wynn, how much blood does the state of Hawaii have at any one time? Blood Bank of Hawaii, you've got to have a lot of blood, right? Maybe a month or two supply. People would be shocked to know that at any one time, Blood Bank of Hawaii only has one week supply, one week supply of red cells. Half of that is on our shelves. Half of that is on the hospital shelf. For the supply of O-negative red cells, that's the universal type. Throughout this week, there were times when Blood Bank of Hawaii only had one day's, one day's supply. So um, you know, as well as I do, that our, our highways are getting more crowded, traffic is getting worse, and that means traffic accidents, and so we've, we, need to, we need to bump up our supply going into the summer. Dr. Kim Ann Nguyen has been Chief Executive Officer at the Blood Bank of Hawaii since 2013. And since this health crisis, the blood bank can't do any large blood drives. It again asks that you make an appointment to come down to one of the six pop-up centers here on Oahu. Uh, And again, we will be marking World Blood Donor Day on June 14th. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Matson, committed to keeping supplies flowing for businesses and communities throughout the islands, now and in the future. Matson.com.
And now it's time to take a look around the globe uh, at the spread of COVID-19. Authorities in India have been ordered to get migrant workers home after they were stranded by the coronavirus lockdown. Meanwhile, the airline industry braces for its largest ever fiscal loss. Here's the BBC with the latest. This is the Coronavirus Global Update on Tuesday the 9th of June. Hello, I'm Oliver Conway. The authorities in India are ordered to get migrant workers home after they were stranded by the lockdown. The airline industry is set for its biggest ever loss and the chef who's fed millions during the pandemic. India's Supreme Court has given state governments there a deadline of 15 days to get hundreds of thousands of migrant workers home after they were left stranded by the coronavirus lockdown. Millions of people lost their jobs in the cities when restrictions were imposed with just four hours' notice. And Rasan Etirajan reports. The Supreme Court took up the matter after the media highlighted the plight of the migrant workers attempting to return to their homes. Without any transport, many walked or cycled hundreds of kilometres to reach their villages in other parts of the country. Scores have died through exhaustion, illness and traffic accidents. The court has also asked officials to withdraw police complaints against the workers for violating lockdown rules. In the capital, Delhi, the authorities have warned they could see more than half a million cases by the end of July. They say they would need 80,000 hospital beds, up from 9,000. Next to the latest on the financial impact of the pandemic on the Eurozone's two biggest economies, Germany and France. German exports plunged to their lowest level since records began 70 years ago, while the French economy is on course to shrink by more than 10% this year. Our economics correspondent Andrew Walker says any improvement will be slow and dependent on the course of the pandemic. Most forecasts are being done on the basis that there will not be a major second wave and that things will gradually return towards something like normality over the coming months. And the Bank of France, for example, has been indicating that it expects to see economic activity getting back to pre-pandemic levels very slowly indeed, so not until 2022. Meanwhile, the world's airlines will make a combined loss of at least $84 billion this year because of the coronavirus, according to the International Air Transport Association. France is providing almost $17 billion in emergency aid for its aerospace industry. Meanwhile, the Hong Kong-based airline Cathay Pacific has agreed a $5 billion bailout backed by China. Hong Kong's financial secretary, Paul Chan, said it was vital that Cathay Pacific didn't collapse. If this challenge is not properly addressed, it would harm Hong Kong's international aviation hub status and adversely impact on other economic activities to the detriment of the overall interests of Hong Kong. There is more evidence of the possible benefits of remdesivir. A study published in the journal Nature found that the antiviral drug stopped lung disease developing in monkeys who had coronavirus. Twelve macaque monkeys were deliberately infected with COVID-19 and half were given early treatment with remdesivir, which has previously been used against Ebola. None of the six monkeys showed signs of respiratory disease. Students in China have been warned to think carefully before travelling to Australia for study because of concerns over racial abuse about COVID-19. They've been told to carry out a risk assessment first. Here's Daniel Mann. China's foreign ministry said that its nationals had faced physical attacks and verbal abuse in Australia and the Chinese flag had been vandalised. Tensions between Beijing and Canberra have been rising after Australia called for an independent inquiry into how coronavirus started in China. 
Australia accepted there had been racist attacks, but said that it was safe to study there. More than half a million foreigners enrolled at universities last year, generating $22 billion for the Australian economy. Chinese citizens make up the biggest group of overseas students. One of the world's most famous landmarks, the Eiffel Tower, will reopen on the 25th of June, marking the end of its longest closure since the Second World War. The authorities in Paris shut it more than three months ago when tough lockdown measures were imposed in France. Finally, a chef from India is celebrating after he provided 10 million meals for impoverished people in his homeland during the pandemic. Vigas Khanna is a Michelin-starred chef based in New York. He almost gave up on his idea after some of the meals were stolen. But following some strong words from his mother, Vigas decided it was his duty to help his fellow Indians. Hunger was something which is very emotional to me. This hurt me when I saw the images. My relatability and my compassion was very real, which broke my heart very deeply. So every time we have a successful delivery, I'll put the music full volume in my apartment in New York and I'll be dancing. I'll say, we did it. It's a small victory, but we did it. New York-based chef Vigas Khanna. And that's it from the Coronavirus Global Update. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Bank of Hawaii, committed to the community's safety and dedicated to customers' financial preparedness, offering the ability to bank from home with mobile and online services 24-7. BOH.com. You are back with the conversation. We have, you know, we've just moved into week two of hurricane season, and the challenges of physical distancing are at the forefront of planning. We talked to Luke Myers, administrator of the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency, about the need for our community to focus on resilience. We are usually uh, an all-hazard organization. Unfortunately, we've been battling COVID since late February, along with other partners around the globe. So whether it's a tsunami incident like we, we, we had back in March, or hurricane season, we're always monitoring the situation and have the horizon for potential uh, impact. With the hurricane season uh, upon us now, uh, we are greatly uh, monitoring the tropics uh, with the National Hurricane Center and our county partners and FEMA uh, for potential impacts as they might arise. I know there's a concern about shelters. Should we need to open them up? Does some worry that we won't have enough volunteers to man those centers? Because a lot of our volunteers are elderly and they may not want to, you know, put themselves in a risky situation. Like we've seen with the larger COVID response, we've seen many different uh, responders and volunteers uh, help support ongoing COVID activities. Obviously, as we transition to a new normal, uh, we're learning to live with COVID. So, like with any other hazard that we would face uh, from a sheltering capacity, uh, one, we would continue to uh, preach and operationalize physical distancing in a sheltering setting, uh, which that way make things more challenging, but at the same time, uh, it keeps people out of harm's way. And then obviously the personnel resources to help support sheltering, whether they are uh, Red Cross volunteers or others, uh, there are proper preparatory actions that they would take to provide those activities. What kinds of conversations have we been having with our partners, like the Red Cross, about staff? So the shelters are uh, operationalized at the county level here in Hawaii. The state supports them. We also work with the American Red Cross. We've had several meetings in the month of May, uh, now into June, 
in just kind of getting ready for the overall season, having conversation on how the county and Red Cross will actually uh, implement those shelters when the time comes. Is there any mechanism where you might be able to tap state or county workers to be able to man those facilities if need be, if we fall short on volunteers? Yes, from a resource request perspective, if a county needs resources, they could uh, one day would obviously look within their own pool of resources first from a personnel perspective or volunteers. And then if they couldn't meet those needs, they would turn to the state. We at the state level could potentially look at a number of resources, including state employees or outside resources from the state uh, through the Emergency Management Assistance Compact. But we would obviously uh, clearly document those needs uh, before we kind of uh, scale up a larger resource uh, procurement. And what's your sense? Because we've been dealing now with this COVID situation and people have been stocking up on you know, everything from toilet paper to water. Do you think uh, families are pretty good on supplies? I think what we've seen in previous uh, disasters here in Hawaii, that the overall community has a sense of uh, resiliency. We've been through a lot, and obviously during the last several months with COVID, uh, this has been uh, further drawn out. Uh, We know that there's been a lot of um, financial uh, impacts to a number of individuals in the state. But we do believe that the overall preparedness level uh, for hurricanes and other incidents is in in a good place at this time. Uh, We know it only takes one storm to impact the state. So we continue to preach having a plan, having a kit, having 14 days of supplies. And in this time with COVID, uh, including hand sanitizer and masks for your family and loved ones that may be impacted. As we saw with a number of previous tropical systems that have come by the island, uh, by the islands, we usually have a number that go around us. It doesn't take a landfalling tropical system to have tremendous impacts. We saw with Hurricane Lane in 2018 that the Big Island and Kauai uh, experienced a tremendous amount of flooding as the storm system just interacted with the the large mountaintops that we have. Likewise, we we can have a system produce very windy conditions that can also impact us without a landfall. So we really want the public to be prepared, uh, not to focus necessarily on the exact track of a storm that may be approaching us, but just to have your overall guard up. Uh, Really know the hazards in your neighborhood, uh, where you work and where you play. A lot of areas that we have in the islands are relatively dry most of the time, but when we get a lot of rain, we, we, we have uh, flash flooding and those type of impacts that can uh, quickly change the environment that you're in. We did identify six calls to action uh, this hurricane season for our residents. One of the things I just want to call out on that list is to have them sign up for uh, county alerts. Uh, each of our counties have their own notification system. Uh, disasters start and end at the local level, so we really challenge the public to sign up for those. Uh, the next major thing that we didn't get a chance to talk about was having insurance. Hurricane insurance uh, is important, and so is flood insurance. Uh, we do see a lot of uh, homes and properties uh, get wet following uh, a tropical storm or just a heavy rain, and, and flood insurance is a very uh, cheap form of mitigation for the public to invest in. And finally, from a larger hurricane perspective, uh, individuals want to be able to uh, have a sense of security in their own home or or where they where they um, where they reside in. So uh, considering a hurricane retrofit or some type of hurricane clips for their their structure uh, may be something 
that they shoot for the, the long haul if, if they can afford it. What we've seen in many disasters is that the underlying financial condition of an individual greatly impact how they will respond and recover. So if there's a way to have a savings and those type of items, uh, that's important. We do have a number of these tips uh, on our website at ready.hawaii.gov. Uh, where the public can get some more information specifically on having a, a kit and plan and some other items and actions that they can take. You know, the big challenge uh, with COVID is that we have the resiliency in the state to live in these islands. You have to be resilient. But we do know that we are we are in some unprecedented times right now. So if, if there's a neighbor or a loved one that you know that needs some help, check in on them. See how they're doing. See if they're they're getting themselves prepared. I think the stronger that we are as a community, the stronger we will come out of COVID and for hurricane season and for any hazard that will threaten the state. We were talking this morning to Luke Myers, the administrator for the Hawaii Emergency Management Agency. We were talking about the need to prepare this hurricane season with the added wrinkle of COVID-19. For links to help you do that, head to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from Inkinen Executive Search, helping Hawaii organizations find leaders to navigate in times of change. More information at Inkinen.com. Joining us for today's reality check on the conversation is Honolulu Civil Beats' Christina Jedra. Uh, she has a couple of stories related to the Honolulu Police Department. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Catherine. So tell us about the latest developments with the Police Commission. So uh, there were two kind of big pieces of news that came out yesterday. Uh, one is Mayor Kirk Caldwell has nominated two new people to fill empty spots on the Honolulu Police Commission. One is Michael Broderick. He's a former family court judge, current CEO of the YMCA. And the other is Doug Chin, a one-time lieutenant governor and former attorney general. Um, both of those nominees need to be confirmed by city council, um, but if they're placed on the commission, they say they will uh, pursue some of the proposed reforms being proposed by the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, the other piece of news that came out yesterday was Police Chief Susan Ballard um, announced that she'll be temporarily banning vascular neck constraints. Uh, this is different from a chokehold, but it um, basically stops blood, blood flow to the brain and um, causes folks to become unconscious. And she said that was a, a direct um, policy change after George Floyd's death in Minneapolis, which she called tragic and criminal. Now, you know, there are lots of issues that have thrust the police department uh, into the limelight. Uh, you know, getting back to the police commission, you know, we, di we did have two people step down, uh, two other legal beagles. That's right, yeah. We lost uh, Loretta Sheehan, who uh, is an attorney and a former federal prosecutor, as well as Steve Levinson, a retired Hawaii Supreme Court justice. Uh, they both resigned um, a few weeks ago, kind of in frustration, actually, that the commission doesn't have more power. Um, the commission can hire and fire the police chief and investigate complaints against officers, but they can't 
uh, fire or discipline rank and file officers. They can't make policy. And so that was frustrating for those attorneys. Um, The commission also recently lost Karen Chang, who is the wife of mayoral candidate Rick Blangiardi. She resigned earlier this year. So we have three vacancies, so far two nominees, um, one once the lot is still in the vetting process. So, you know, hopefully once the commission is whole again that they can tackle some of these issues and uh, maybe make some headway in the areas of transparency, you know, uh, which I guess prompted, uh, you know, both Xi'an and um, Levinson to, to step down. Yeah, that was one of, um, I think, several frustrations. Um, And it's not all within the power of the commission to do. Um, You know, with all this talk of reform, HPD continues to keep secret the names of officers accused of misconduct. Um, A combination of legal and union protections keep that information out of the public eye, according to the chief. Um, But that may be changing at the the state legislature. There's a bill that would make names and details public about um, police disciplinary issues. So we'll have to see if our lawmakers act on that. And I know a lot of folks uh, uh, have very high hopes for Susan Ballard, you know, and the changes and the stability that uh, she brings uh, to the Honolulu Police Department after the, the scandal with the Chief Kealoha and his wife. That's right. And she said she actually has implemented a lot of um, positive reforms. Some of the things that the Black Lives Matter activists are asking for, um, Ballard said yesterday, we already do that. She said they already have racial bias training. They already train on a duty to intervene. That's when officers kind of um, tell their partner to, to back off if they're misbehaving in some way. Um, some of the other reforms, she's more hesitant to change, um, including banning shooting at moving vehicles. She doesn't want to take options away from her officers, but she seems to be receptive to uh, the criticisms being uh, voiced in these protests. Well, I, I know transparency is a big thing, and, and uh, we'll see uh, as the um, nominees uh, you know, go before the council for uh, confirmation and when the third uh police commission member is added, uh, whether they can make, uh, again, headway in these areas. Absolutely. Yeah. Thanks so much, Christina. Thanks, Catherine. That was reporter Christina Jedra with today's Reality Check with our partners from uh, Honolulu Civil Beat. You can read her stories online at civilbeat.org. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, with a collection reflecting the cultural diversity of the islands and a commitment to presenting art and exhibitions that inspire. More at honolulumuseum.org. You know, there's been lots of concern about how COVID-19 can affect children. The Centers for Disease Control alerted pediatricians last month to look at a possible link with a rare and serious inflammatory disease related to Kawasaki syndrome, which is frequently seen in keiki of Japanese and Korean descent. To get a better idea of the possible connections between the illnesses, we spoke with Dr. Marion Mellish, a Hawaii pediatrician who has worked extensively with Kawasaki disease, toxic shock, and coronaviruses. From the limited information that I'm able to get, I doubt that this is going to be um, an exact match for Kawasaki disease. I think there are some features uh, that are probably shared, and ultimately this will probably show some interesting light on both diseases. But this is pediatric and multisystem inflammatory disease, and it's an association with an intense COVID outbreak in um, New York and New Jersey, and also reported only so far from the cities 
in the world that are having intense outbreaks where you can expect a very large number of their population will be exposed. The early news reports that I've seen talk about possibly related to Kawasaki or toxic shock, and you have a background in both those areas. Yes, I do. Well, there are features that are probably similar. This is probably going to be three diseases. One of the characteristics of pediatric multisystem inflammatory disease is intense inflammation, a generalized rash, some early evidence that I don't really understand of involvement of the area of blood vessels and also, in the case of toxic shock, multi-organ dysfunction. In the case of Kawasaki disease, it is very definitely involvement of the arteries with inflammation. The pictures that I've seen look very much like Kawasaki disease in terms of the rash, but then the rash is not entirely specific. The rash itself can take many forms, can be a big blotchy rash, it can be a generalized all over scarlet fever type of rash, it can be a rash that looks like hives, and it can be a rash that looks like measles. So Kawasaki disease is an illness of young children. There are some genetic links to Asian ancestry, particularly Japanese, Korean, and to some extent Chinese, um, Filipino. Um, Pacific Islanders, where it is far more common in people of these ancestries than people of unmixed European ancestry. In Hawaii, where we have a multi-ethnic population, one the rate in children of Japanese ancestry is 15 to 18 times higher than it is in children of unmixed European ancestry. What can you um, tell us about the numbers here in Hawaii? It varies from year to year. We have seen as many as 120 cases, new cases in a year as as little as 40. Interestingly, at a time when COVID is receding in our community, we have recently seen three children in a 10-day period with Kawasaki disease. That would not have been surprising in many years because we often have had one to two cases, uh, new cases every week. But this particular year, we've had very little Kawasaki disease since December, and uh, so these three cases coming all together were a little bit of a surprise. Now, you also do work with coronaviruses. I've been very, very interested in coronavirus, which our state has so far, and our population have handled probably better than anywhere else in the United States in terms of compliance with social distancing, mask wearing, and the things that we have done have resulted in the near disappearance of new cases of COVID. If there's a relationship to Kawasaki disease, that will become clear. There are probably some important similarities that shouldn't be shouldn't be a surprise. Number one, in serious disease in adults, which of course affects affects only a very minority of adults infected with COVID, it is known they can have an intense inflammatory reaction that damages their blood vessels and multiple organs. This is something that is sometimes loosely called cytokine storm, where the natural chemicals in the body which promote inflammation are increased many fold, and then this itself causes disease. Now, inflammation is an important part of trying to fight infections, but when inflammation is unchecked, and it, it can itself be damaging. And this is known to be a serious problem in uh, adults in ICUs who have COVID. The other thing about children is we are learning about Kawasaki disease in children, but it is still a big mystery area because in every area that has been looked at, a very small minority of children with recognized respiratory or other 
signs of COVID are a, a very small number of all children infected now that we're learning more about how many people are getting infected through antibody testing. But it has been known from Wuhan and across American intensive care units for children, a tiny minority of children, often those with comorbidities, do have a serious um, inflammatory component that causes their lungs, uh, hearts, and kidneys to fail. I mean, people are learning a lot, and there's a lot of interest in it. The New York people, despite the fact that they're still fighting uh, disease uh, everywhere, they have set up a a bunch of uh, research tests and a consortium that uh, we are going to join of Kawasaki disease researchers that has been based in Canada out of the Toronto Hospital for Sick Children are planning to study the blood vessels of the heart, which is one of the areas that is affected in Kawasaki disease. And they're planning to look at this in children with Kawasaki, which we do already in children who have the pediatric inflammatory condition, wherever it might show up. New things are showing up all the time, things we didn't expect. We talked about ventilators. Well, now we're talking about the need also to support the kidneys, which often fail. In the small group of people, who end up in intensive care units. Now we're learning more about children who might end up in intensive care units that have something that might be similar to both toxic shock and Kawasaki disease. And in fact, it's very well known that viruses circulate among children, often more than one virus at a time even. And it's also been known that the common cold type of coronaviruses sometimes do trigger Kawasaki disease. So there are probably some similarities, but there are probably some big differences as well. I was conducted by uh, CDC, some other international researchers to ask what we've been seeing. There's a very active Kawasaki disease research group in Boston, which is another hard-hit city. And Dr. Jane Neuberger has been recruited and active in that area. And the researcher who's leading the study of heart involvement from Toronto is Brian McCrindle. So, you know, some light will be shed, but it seems like the, the New York group is becoming quite active in this area. And I think they're going to be the ones to define the syndrome more more completely, and then people can learn. But, you know, this outbreak has surprised people at every turn, and that is going to apparently continue. But we have learned a lot since January. That is not even half a year, and we're in better condition to deal with it than we were in January. That was Dr. Marion Mellish, a pediatrician with expertise in Kawasaki disease, toxic shock, and coronaviruses. She works at Kapilani Medical Center and the University of Hawaii Medical School and is collaborating with an international team of researchers on a project related to COVID-19. And that wraps it up for today's show. We now go back to Pledge Central with Bill Dorman and Derek Malama. <laughs> 